I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 227. 227? What is that? Isn't that that show with Jack Hay? I don't know. Let me look. Five minutes later. It sure is. (laughs) My dad used to watch it. That does not surprise me in (laughs) the least. So Donna, Creep Mom, and Morgan got me watching this show. Colby and me watching it. What's it called? How to Build a Sex Room. Y'all, that show is so good on Netflix. (laughs) The uh, designer, what's her name? Melanie. Melanie. First of all, she's hilarious. She's British. She's hilarious. I love everything about her, including her outfits. Like when she wears her little skull scarves, I'm like, you are my people. Yes. But like, she's funny. And her relationship with her contractor, y'all, I'm here for it. And that fucking chair, if you know, you know. (laughs) Right? Oh my God. I need one. Can we get a sponsor for the podcast for that? <laughs> we got to eat two because we can't be sharing that. Oh, no. Mm-mm. You know, of course, we looked it up. And the one that they have on the show starts at like $1,400. So, LOL, never getting that. No. But, you know, if you look at the yoga version of the chair, I don't even, it's like a cha- like a yoga sex chaise lounge thing. Yeah. The yoga version, way cheaper than the sex. Yes. Sex sells. That's why. People be spending $1,400 for a damn chair. Oh, they got it at dirt cheap. (laughs) That's our... I don't know if I would get it from there. (laughs) Probably not. But that's like our uh, bargain place. Yeah. (laughs) Like the Walmart car on fire and then dirt cheap bought all their Mm -hmm. fire goods. That. I love that place. I mean, it really, it furnished most of my house. Seriously, me too. Oh, that's from Target, but way of dirt cheap. Yeah. care of dirt cheap. Oh, you think it's Hearth and Hound? No, it's... Uh, oh my God, that's not it. What is it? Whatever that Magnolia brand is. Heart and Hearth. Hearth and Heart. Hearth and Hearth and Hand. Hand, okay. But you always say it from... Notting Hill. Notting Hill, yeah. Yeah, I always call it wrong. Whatever that Magnolia brand is. But like everything I have of that, dirt cheap. <laughs> like 70% off. Would never pay retail. Mm-mm. You know, we all about the damn deal. Yes. But what we're also about, True Crime Podcast Festival in August. Y'all, it is right around the corner. Like August 27th and 8th. It's going to be in Dallas. So y'all need to check it out if you're going to be in the area or you just want to pop in for a visit, you know, if you're from somewhere else. We have some creepsters who are doing just that. And we are so freaking thankful that y'all are coming to see us. And we're going to do a meetup Saturday We have the location. I don't know it off the top of my head. Me neither, but check the Facebook group. Yes. We actually already have a place. I think last time we talked about it, we said, you know us. We'll probably get it um, the day of. But have no fear. Morgan and Creep Mom came to the rescue. Yes. (laughs) So they're like the two OG moderators of the Facebook group. They've literally been with us since like the beginning, except for you, Valerie AB. You were the original. Original. Valerie just had a birthday. So anyway, they set us straight and they got us a place and did all the things. So thank y'all very much for organizing that meetup. So if you're in the Dallas area or like we said, you want to get tickets to the True Crime Podcast Festival, meet some other awesome podcasters. There's some round tables. There's some presentations. There's like expo style where you get to walk around and meet all of the different podcasters, all the things, check it out. Go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com. And there you can get your tickets. So we're just going to jump right in. And my story this week comes from a recommendation from Allie D. Before I get too much into this story, though, I do want to tell y'all that it's definitely a content warning this week because this week is super heavy and graphic. 
The story this week is on Donna's not-so-favorite. It's a serial killer, but his name is Luis Garavito, and he was known as the Beast of Colombia. Ooh. So Luis had a very difficult childhood. His childhood was probably one of the harder of childhoods that I've covered. Like there was just something whenever I was listening to, there's a bunch of podcasts on this story because again, can you finish one sentence? (laughs) I had a lot of Coke, Coca-Cola at lunch. (laughs) No, what do we just have dinner? Dinner. So sorry. Okay. It truly was though, when I, when I was listening to the podcast about it and stuff, a couple of times I was just like, and it's stuff I guess we've heard. I don't know. Something just hit me struck a chord with this story. Growing up, Luis's dad was a piece of shit. He was extremely abusive to Luis, his siblings, and his mother. His mother, from accounts, it appears that she was forced into sex work as a means to support the family, but nobody's really sure. And when it came to the abuse, Luis seemed to be one of his dad's favorites, air quotes around that, to abuse. Luis's father would force him to watch his mother with her clients when she was performing sex work. And then he would also essentially sell Luis to those same clients, raped basically by those same clients. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, how do you have sex when you know this kid is watching you, you know? But then, oh, no, the same people then... Would turn around and rape him. Yes, absolutely. Oh, gosh. Well, and the thing is, too, is that, you know, his mother was a victim of the abuse herself. So she wasn't a safe place or a saving grace for him at all because she had her own substance abuse problems and she was just as abused as him. So she was terrified. There was no way that... He had no safe space. Yeah, And this story happens in Colombia. I don't even know if I said this, but this story happens in Colombia. So... Yes, you've said that multiple times. Oh, okay. Well, then cut that. (laughs) Cut it. Colombia. I hate you so much. That's how it's fucking said. I know. (laughs) Have I said this word a lot? I hate you so much. Colombia? How would you say it? (laughs) It was just like, I don't know if I've said this yet. Yes, you have. Also, I sounded like so aggressive, even though I was totally kidding. I hate you, you dickhead. (laughs) That's been you all night. (laughs) It really a week. It's been a rough week. Okay. So like I've said 17 times, this happens in Colombia. So you just have to think that there's no safe space for Luis because there's all this violence. There's like civil unrest, even within the government. You have people trying to overthrow the government and all of these things. And Luis, his family life, his abuse was so bad that he ran away when he was seven years old. Golly, bless his heart. So picture a seven-year-old living on the streets anywhere. But Columbia? Yeah, wow. I think about my nephew Cole, and he's eight. So I'm like, last year, that would have been like Cole running away last year. Yeah. It it just blows my mind. So by the time he was eight years old, he had been found by a pedophile. There was a man that told him, hey, I'll give you food. I'll give you a place to sleep. Just like, come with me. And of course, he'd been living on the streets scrounging for food, scrounging for money, doing anything that he could to survive. And he took him up on the offer. The man instead took him to an abandoned house where he repeatedly raped and assaulted Luis. Oh my gosh. 
eventually he was able to escape, and the only thing he could do was to join a gang. At eight years old? Yes. This gang was known to rob people for money, cars, food, literally anything. And they would take the cars to like chop shops for money. Eventually, Luis is in this gang and he's working and he's getting enough money to where he can start surviving a little bit better on the streets because he joined the gang because he needed protection. I mean, which is what most people do anyway, is they're joining for the protection. So Luis is traveling around with his gang to find people to steal from. So as I mentioned before, there had been like decades-long civil war that was happening in Colombia, and it really did leave a lot of people homeless, and of that homeless population, there were a lot that were kids. These kids had to do whatever they could to make money, to give to their families, and to survive. And these kids made perfect targets for people like Luis. Eventually, he left the gang and went out on his own and would sell things as vendors or just literally do anything to make money. But because he traveled a lot and he was around like street vendors and all of that, that's where he would find his prey. Luis would always look for young boys who were either homeless or orphaned, and he would offer them a job, money, food, anything. And he would present himself in a way that made it very believable. Like he may say to a kid, hey, can you help me come move this cattle for some money when he was in like a more rural area? And then he would present like he had been working in the fields all day. You know, he had different costumes and different Like if he was presenting himself like a vendor on the street, you know, he would be dressed a certain way. Like he just used costumes and and ways to trick kids. But also he didn't really have to do much because bless their hearts, they were so desperate for money to survive for themselves and their family that they were going to do whatever it took. Well, and he knew that because that's who he was and how he got in that situation with that terrible pedophile earlier when he was eight years old. Right. And you'd think that it would almost be like the opposite, that these kids are more street smart because they're on the streets and they would be more leery. But I mean, I just think about like, you know, the in psychology, when you learn like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's like, well, their basic needs aren't met. So they're doing everything that they can to meet those needs. Yeah. And so that takes priority over their safety because they're like, no, like I got to eat. My little sister has to eat. Yeah. He would even sometimes impersonate a priest. So what he would do is when he would get a young boy to go with him, he would make them walk a long way so that they would be really exhausted. So when he would attack, they would be too tired from schlepping all the way over the fucking countryside. They weren't able to defend themselves as well. Meanwhile, you're a grown man and it's a young boy like, He could easily overtake them, but he just wanted it to be easy as possible. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about what he did to the victims, but I am going to tell. So if, I mean, this is again, a pretty big content warning because we are talking about kids. So if you need to skip forward, skip forward. The first thing he would do after he tired them out would be to bind their wrists together. And then from there, he would torture them over and over and over again. On the victims, there would be a lot of bite marks left on their bodies. There would be evidence of 
of obviously a sexual assault. There would be evidence of anal penetration from objects. He would stick pins in them. Uh Uh-uh. And before he would decapitate the bodies, he would remove their genitals and place them in their mouth. Oh my gosh. And it's not known if that was done pre or post-mortem. Oh my gosh. I listened to a few different podcasts on Luis. One was called um, Serial Killing, a podcast. And the other was The Worst Serial Killers of Modern Times. And on one of those, they talked about how at this time, Colombia was like Los Angeles in the 70s. Like there were so many serial killers. People were just kind of learning and understanding what it really meant. And again, there was so much violence with like the drugs, the civil wars and all of that, mm-hmm. that and so much corruption in the government that it was hard to really know like what was from a serial killer. Like was that from one person or was that from, you know, somebody got tied up in the drug cartel? You right, know? yeah. But in 1997, there was a mass grave that was discovered. They found 25 bodies. Holy shit. 25? Yes. And at first, people were like, well, this has to be some sort of satanic cult. Like, this has to be, this has to be some sort of, like, sacrifice. Like, there's 25 bodies. Like, how did 25 people, kids, young boys, go missing and us not notice? Like, this has to be, like, this can't be the work of one person. But then, in February of 1998, there were bodies of two naked young boys found, and then not, but, like, a couple of feet, meters, whatever, away, there was another body found of a boy. And all of them had their hands tied behind their backs and their throats were cut. Very similar to the 25 that they had found. Yeah, were there genitals in their mouth? I don't think that he did that to every single one. But what they did find on the bodies that had decomposed already, they would find that on their vertebrae, like you could tell that that had been cut that much. Oh, gosh. Those poor freaking children. At the crime scene with the 25 corpses, there was a lot of evidence left. Like shoes, underwear, glasses, semen. Lots of evidence left there. Yeah. When they found the bodies of the boys in 1998, there was more evidence there. There was a note with an address handwritten on it. What? Like under the bodies. Return to? Right. So when police try to figure out who the address belongs to, it belongs to a woman named Teresa. She was the girlfriend of Luis. Oh, gosh. And by her accounts, Luis was a very kind person that would anger very quickly, but she had young kids and he was really great with those kids. There were no issues. But while the police were talking to her, she was like, oh, wait, you know what? Actually, he left some belongings here. Here, let me just give this to you. It's like this, it's like this bag of his stuff. Like, here, why don't you take that? So when the police get the bag, they look in it. They find pictures drawn of the boys, detailed journal entries where he talks about all of the crimes. How did she never read that? Exactly. And look. It, it, literally, exactly. There were even tally marks for his victims. Oh my God. Also, if she didn't look at that stuff, how did she keep it? Because I would have got rid of that a long time ago. I don't know that they had actually ended their relationship. Some stuff made it seem like they had, but then like 
I don't know that they had because he traveled all oh, of the yeah. time. And that was part of his MO was that he traveled so much to the different, I think they called them districts, like different states so that he wouldn't get caught. Mm-hmm. So he would just be like, hey, I got to go over, you know, a couple of things away and sell my shoe. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I thought you were going to say machines. <laughs> you said machine. <laughs> Based on the girlfriend and the bag, at some point they got an address for where Luis was staying. They went and they searched and he was gone. He basically becomes like a wanted man. Right. Well, while all this is going on in a neighboring town, there's a, a homeless man who was watching this kid that was being followed by a man. And he was like, this don't look right. And so when the man tried to like grab the kid's arm and like force him to go, the guy was like, uh, leave him the fuck alone, go away and stop that man from taking the kid. Wow. Well, that man was Luis and they didn't know it. Wow. So Luis is like running away because like he does not want to get caught. Like he wants to do, he kidnaps these kids in broad daylight because he just gets them to go with him. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't want any attention drawn to himself. He wants all the disguises, all the things. So he's like running away and is like zigzagging in and like these cars are like almost hitting him and they all get a good look at him. So eventually they identify him and he gets arrested. But when he gets arrested, he gives the police a different name. And so they like book him in jail as this different person because they don't have like computers to be looking up his fingerprints on. They don't have that, even though it's like 1999, they ain't got it. So he's in jail being like, yeah, I'm Joe Schmo. Right. He's like, yep, that's my name. Also, real quick, can we just talk about how amazing that homeless man was? Absolutely. Literally saved that boy's life. Yes. Oh my gosh. Not all heroes wear capes. I don't really know how they made this leap, but the police start thinking like, I think this is Luis. Like, I don't think this is Joe Schmo. This, like, this is him. For some reason, I guess maybe their laws, they can't just be like, give me your DNA. So they had to like sneak in his cell when he was out of it to get some DNA from his cell, like off his pillow and just some other stuff. Sorry, when you said out of it, I thought you meant like he was asleep. And then you said on his pillow and I was like, how they get it from his pillow if he's asleep? So yeah. I'm literally picturing like the cops like Ace Ventura in it yeah. over like yeah. being very sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. Wait, what? Oh, out of it. Out, like of, out the of the cell. cell. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Not like, like out of it, like passed out. Yeah, not, not what I was thinking at all. So remember how I told you there was all of this evidence left at the crime scene and the glasses and all? Yeah. So the glasses they found in true like Scooby-Doo fashion were this prescription for like a very specific eye condition that they're like, no, like Luis, Betty has this eye condition. Oh my gosh. So they like set it up. So like the whole jail got eye exams. (laughs) So they could be like, Louise got this eye condition. Right. And well, as Tiffany says, ended up winding up. He had it. What was it? I, I literally never saw. I'm I like, what? Know. He got like double vit. Like what? Like, not that's really not that rare. But like, what was this eye condition that was so rare that you could like see it in his glasses? Yeah. I had no idea. 
I just don't understand why he left his underwear and shoes at the crime scene. Like, your shoes? Yeah, he probably had stuff on him. And so it was just like easier to... Leave him, I guess? Yeah, because he... Well, he didn't think anyone was going to dig up this... Well, he's 25 bodies in. I mean... (laughs) Why why was I so country? (laughs) This. But yeah, I mean, at that point, he really was 25 bodies into this grave. Like, nobody's going to find this. Yeah, so he was just like... And here's my bag of shit that I did in the safe hiding spot. Which, thank you for doing that because it led to your arrest. So after the police get all this information, they bring Luis in for an interrogation. And as they start recounting the viciousness of the crimes to him, he cracks like an egg and spills everything. He ended up confessing to the murders of 140 kids. Holy shit. He was charged with killing 172 altogether. So within the courts, if you confess, it, it like it's not just like, a, oh, confess, you know, just like here. They're not just going to be like, oh, you confess, you blah, blah, you know, unless you yeah. make a plea, right? Yeah. But if you have evidence along with your confession, then it can like skip the trial process and go straight to sentencing. It's kind of what I gathered. They developed this like team of a couple of detectives that really put in the legwork to prove a bunch of these cases. Like, it was like, no, like, they they really proved that he did these. Yeah. They found him guilty of 138 of the 172 counts. And it's, like, still ongoing because he was in so many different places. Yeah. Well, and if he had a massive grave of 25 here, you know he had to have a massive grave of... 25 in this location, the other location. That's just so freaking mind-blowing and terrible. Well, okay. So, Columbia doesn't have the death penalty or life in prison. Really? Basically, it was like 13 years of prison per murder. So, he was sentenced to 1,853 years and nine days in prison. And it was the lengthiest prison sentence, like, ever in Colombian history. Wow. But. Oh, my gosh. Colombian law limits the amount of time that someone can be in jail to 40 years. What? And because he was very, very helpful, it reduced his sentence. Helpful in finding the people that he murdered? Yeah. And not just people, kids? Mm Mm-hmm. And the viciousness of his crimes? hmm Oh, my gosh. Basically, because his crimes were, like, so great, there is a little bit of a loophole that makes it to where he could serve 60 years in prison. But he got a reduction in his sentencing to, like, 22 years because once he confessed, he was helping police, like, find the graves and stuff. and wasn't just leading them on a wild goose chase. He was actually being like, okay, we'll go right here and then go right here. While he's been in prison, he's been a model inmate, as they say. And he is kept separate from the other prisoners because he killed, like, let's just round it out, 150 kids. Yeah. Kids. Like, I'm talking, like, 6 to 13-year-olds. Wow. Like, prepubescent and child yeah. boys. And so they have to keep him separate from all the other inmates to keep him alive. And he is so fearful that people are going to 
poison him that he will only like take drinks and stuff from certain people. Oh my gosh. The guards say that he's relaxed, he's positive, he's respectful. And because of his like reduction sentence, there really is a chance that he will get out of prison. So he's studying to become a politician and he hopes to start a career in activism to help abused kids. <gasps> Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. So there was a an appeal to get him out of jail earlier. But because he hadn't paid his fines. Who a, appealed that? Like, right? Who? Girl. So. Oh, I guess he did. True. <laughs> I was just thinking like on his behalf. No. Someone did that. And I'm like, who? So because he hadn't paid his fines for the victims, which was about $41,000. That's what this article said. So I'm assuming that it had changed it over to dollars. But anyway, about $41,000. It was denied. But he will be up for parole in 2023. Oh my gosh. How old will he be then? Like 60. Like young. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Right now he's 65. So he'll be, you know, well, 66. Holy shit. That's retirement age. Could get out and live for a lot longer. Yeah. But if he serves the 40 years, he'll be in his 80s when he gets out. If he serves the 60 years, that's a death sentence for him. Yeah. So people, of course, are really pushing for him to have to serve out the whole amount of time. And I mean, if he ever got out, he would be killed, I think. Unless they put him up in witness protection somewhere. True. But as corrupt as everything is, I think that somebody, even the cartel, just to be like, fuck you. you." But they haven't gotten him in prison. True. They may not be trying. I don't know. Also, this is probably a very problematic opinion because we do care about all lives, even if they suck. But like, I don't know. It just really sucks that someone that does such shitty things to people and is so callous and cares nothing for someone else's life gets that level of protection. Yeah. Because you didn't protect the innocent children. You brutally murdered them. And yet, you know what? You don't want to be killed in prison. Look, we'll keep you in this separate cell and we'll protect you. Yeah. Which, again, that's the, like, anger side of me. The, like, more reasonable. We have right. people actually have rights. Even though they're shitty people, we still have to protect them. Like, I understand why we do that but like the angry side of me yeah they're saying which and you know when you have a serial killer like this that has that many victims the numbers tend to get inflated but it really is not unreasonable the numbers that they're estimating could be 350 to 400 kids wow he confessed basically to 170 i I mean i really think that it's possible that the numbers are that high yeah like he's never going to be reformed he's never going to be you you let him out he's going to do it again because he's actually done some interviews and stuff and he says that he would get drunk and that another being like a higher being would take over him and that's when he would kill okay but we can't make sure you don't drink when you're out right so if that happens stop drinking you know like there's got to be some responsibilities for your decisions yeah also you had these ruses that you would do exactly like you knew what you were going to do right it wasn't like you were like just like drunk and stumbled out into a freaking kid and did you know what i mean like yeah no you knew what you were doing yeah you role-played the part that you needed to mm-hmm. to make it believable Oh, this pisses me off. Yeah, this one's like, I don't know, just like some of the torture. And of course, I didn't go into like a lot of that because, ooh, I don't know. It really struck a chord with me. Like I said, how bad his growing up had to be for him to run away at seven. There was just something about being like, this kid ran away at seven. But I find it interesting, the age range that he attacked. Mm Mm-hmm. 
is the age range in which he was the most vulnerable as a kid. Yeah. Because some stuff I read made it sound like he ran away and then like a day later was taken by that guy and then like two days later he joined the gang. Very like in the beginning of the Bible type thing. Like it made the timeline seem really short. But then in some things it was like he ran away when he was seven. He was attacked by that man when he was eight. He joined the gang when he was like 13. You know, so some stuff like spread it out a little bit more. So I don't really know, know that timeline. But if the seven to 13 is correct well he attacks six to 13 year olds so it's very telling of what he thought of his vulnerabilities yeah so it's like he's attacking himself over and over again yeah one of the biggest reasons why he was caught to was one of the boys that he murdered the mother like took it upon herself to investigate because again the police are just so overrun with cases they can't keep up you know i mean they literally cannot keep up with the amount of murders so she started solving it on her own and she basically figured out it was luis and that example that i told you about like the cattle thing that was what her son came in and told her like i'm so excited this guy offered for me to come with him tomorrow to like help with the cattle and for money and she was they were all excited and then he never came back But she really played a big part in figuring out who he was, too. Wow. Well, now that you've depressed us all. I know. Sorry. It was a rough one. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you went first this time with that one. All right. So today I'm going to cover James Dean's car, known as Little Bastard, and the curse that it supposedly holds. Ooh, James Dean, like, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean? Yes. Very sexy. (laughs) You know, in a lot of his pictures, 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. But on some of them, I'm like, "Mm, that was not your friend. Like, whoever took that picture, not your friend. He did not know your angles. Because, seriously, some were like, whoa. Others were like... He could catfish. I could see that. Well, and it was just such a different sexy back then. Yeah. Yeah, but certain pictures I was like, okay, hello. Oh, Jamie boy can get it, huh? Uh Uh-huh. For our younger peeps or people like me who don't watch all the old movies and stuff, I'm going to talk about James Dean for a minute and, you know, like give you the Donnapedia version of him and his career. He was born James Byron Dean on February 8th. 1931 in Marion, Indiana. He was the only child of Mildred and Winton, or Winton, as I also say, Dean. Last name Newton. Who am I? Carrie, I'm telling a story like you right now. You really are doing a terrible job, just like me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Kind of. No, no, I really am. You know what? They moved to Santa Monica, California (laughs) when he was six years old. And I believe it was for his dad's dental career because his dad was a farmer. But then he went on to become like a dental technician. Okay, moving up like the Jeffersons. (laughs) Well, James was really close with his mother. Not really his dad. His dad was kind of like the no-nonsense stern dad but his mom Mildred sadly died from uterine cancer when James was only nine years old oh my god he was young yeah and his dad Winton that's how I said it all the time and then when I first say it here I'm like Winton 
But his dad, Winton, just couldn't handle dealing with the grief and trying to be the sole parent to James. So he sent James to live with his aunt and uncle back in Indiana. God, that has to be so hard on a kid. You lose a parent and then you're uprooted from the life that you know. Yeah, This is where James got close to a local Methodist pastor, Reverend James DeWeird, I believe. But he really counseled James and helped him deal with everything from his early childhood. And he also introduced James to car racing and theater, which became two of his biggest passions. Now, there's some speculations around the Reverend and James. And I found this information on Wikipedia. But there is a book written by Paul Alexander titled The Boulevard of Broken Dreams, The Lifetimes and Legend of James Dean. And in it, it alleged the abuse. And then later it came out that Elizabeth Taylor knew of the sexual abuse because James Dean confided in her. And he said that it was about two years after his mother's death when it started. But this is all alleged because I don't think there is any evidence. And I really could only find that on Wikipedia. Just to confirm, abuse from the pastor. Yes. Not his dad. Yeah. Well, after James graduated from high school, he left Indiana and moved back to California and lived with his dad, who was remarried by this time. He enrolled in UCLA, but dropped out in 1951 to become a full-time actor. I'm just going to hit on his bigger roles because he was like a walk-on in several little ones and even like I think had a Pepsi commercial, but not like he was a star of the Pepsi commercial, just like, oh yeah, that kid in the background Pepsi commercial kind of thing. But his big roles were East of Eden, which is the movie from the book of John Steinbeck. I freaking love that book. I was going to say, you used to love John Steinbeck. Yes. Well, then he starred in Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. And Giant was his last role, which was actually released after his death. Well, so was Rebel Without a Cause, but whatever. But by 1954, James had decided to pursue a career in motor racing as well as being an actor. When he wrapped East of Eden, he bought some cars. He did well with the racing, but neither careers would last long as James died so young from a car crash. So let's talk about the car and then the crash. James Dean's previous car had like a piston malfunction or a blown engine, something that I can't comprehend. So he needed a new car. But at the time, he was banned from racing from the Warner Brothers because he was filming. And they said that was too dangerous. And I mean, now people would still do that. But like now we have the technology where if an actor dies, you know, they could like CGI his freaking face and continue the movie. Back then, they definitely couldn't. So if you're a star of a movie, like don't do anything stupid, you know, quote, stupid. But finally, on September 21st, 1955, when he rapped on Giant, that movie, he bought a Porsche 550 Spider. Or if you're a layman like me, you still say Porsche. I Like, I know it's Porsche. I know they came out and were like, y'all have been pronouncing this incorrectly. It's Porsche. But in my head, I say Porsche still. But this was brand new and there were only 90 of them 
ever made. But James wanted the car even more customized. So he took it to Dean Jeffries. And he's the one who like, you know, quote unquote, pimped his ride. You remember that mm-hmm. show? I love that show. They always had like drinks and like all this stuff in the back seat that I'm or like in the trunk that I'm like, that's not like even reasonable. They had a fish tank in one. Yeah. It's like, how you drive that thing? Yeah, I know. But God, I loved it. Anyways, Dean Jeffries, he put the number 130 on the doors and the hood as that was James Dean's number, but that was like a preliminary number. Like he had only been in a few races. I don't think that was his like, this is going to be your racing number from here to eternity. So it was like actually in maybe washable paint or something like that. So they could change it whenever it became like the thing. Also, he painted the nickname Little Bastard on the deck lid, and that's why the car is called Little Bastard. So there's two versions of the story, but one says it's a nickname that he kept when one of the Warner Brothers execs called him a little bastard because he was being very difficult on the East of Eden set. So he kind of like kept it as a way to piss him off, you know, like, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Okay, that's what I'm going to go by now. But then another story said that Bill Hickman, who was a stuntman and a fellow actor, called James a little bastard and James called him big bastard. Like it was their little thing. But it might even just be like a cross between the two. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I overheard him say this. So now that's your name. And then like, okay, well, I'm going to call you big bastard. Thanks for explaining how you that would work. You know what? I, didn't I heard you say Columbia <laughs> 20 times. I'm sorry, Columbia. How would you say it? Uh, well, obviously I said it wrong the first time. But if you're not a car enthusiast, it's a tiny two-seat silver sports car that sits really low to the ground. It's fucking beautiful. <laughs> it's something that would be a one-seater if I sat in it. And honestly, it looks like a little bullet. And it was as fast as one, too. Like, reaching up to speeds of 140 cars can go faster now but I mean think about how dangerous this was like it was like an aluminum can on wheels there was like no safety features and it was very lightweight to be fast yeah there's definitely not the same safety requirements and all of that then that there are now right the day he got the car James was driving around LA and him and I think Bill, they went to some restaurant to eat. That's when he happened across Sir Alec Guinness, who's a British actor who later would become known for playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. But James was like, dude, look at my car. Like it's fresh off the lot, all this stuff. And Alec was like, yeah, it looks amazing, but also looks really dangerous. And Alec went on to further tell James that he had a bad feeling about the car. And then come to find out, Sir Alec, he had written in his diary about the exchange between the two of them. And this is what he said. He said, the sports car looked sinister to me, exhausted, hungry, feeling a little ill-tempered in spite of Dean's kindness. I hear myself saying in a voice I could hardly recognize as my own, please never get in it. If you get in that car, you will be found dead in it by this time next week. Jesus. Right? But James was young and he didn't care what others thought. He was going to do what he wanted to do. He was a rebel without a cause. Mm-hmm. But since that movie wrapped, James entered a race in Salinas, California. That would be October 1st and the 2nd. Well, anything for Salinas. I know. That's how I remembered how to say it. 
So since it was going to be October 1st, on September 30th, James and his crew headed to Salinas. The people with him was his friend and that movie stuntman, Bill Hickman, a photographer named Sanford Roth, and then a Porsche mechanic, like from the factory, named Roth Wetherick. Surely they weren't all in that car with him. Well, no. Okay, well, you said with him. I was just making sure. It was a one-seater, basically. What most people do is they have their crew with them, but they put the race car on the back of a trailer. And so it would have been the person who's pulling the trailer and stuff and then them in another car. Yeah. Or them all ride in that car. You know, whatevs. But also, Rolf, was that not the name of the telegraph person on Sound of Music? I think so. Because that's all I was just picturing. And I was like, that motherfucker. (laughs) Always causing problems. Always. (laughs) Because he did cause a problem. Not a Uh problem, but they were all going to go down there and take the car, little bastard, on a trailer. But Rolf was like, look, this is the first time that you're actually going to drive this car. It's a lot faster. He didn't even really want him to get that one because it was so fast. But he's like, look, you got to learn how to handle it around the curves and everything and just get a feel for like, oh, yeah, this is going to like speed up here, blah, 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 blah. Because he had only gotten it nine days before this. Yeah, I mean, he wants to know if it's going to corner like it's on rails. Oh, God. How many movie quotes can we do? I mean, it's a movie star. (laughs) True. So they all agreed, and so James and Rolf rode in Little Bastard, and Bill followed behind in the other car that was bringing the trailer. And what we know is around 3.30 p.m., they both were pulled over and got tickets for speeding. And I think they were, like, doing 65 and a 55, but some say it was 70 and a 55, but the guy was like, well, I clocked you doing... 65. So that's what we're just going to go with. But Bill actually got like a heftier fine because he was towing the trailer. And so that meant that the speed limit would be 45 for him and he was going 65. Then the next thing we know is that around 4.55 that night, they were driving westbound on US 466, which is now just US 46. It's near Shalam, California. And in a blink of an eye, James and Rolf wrecked Little Bastard. What had happened was Donald Turnipseed, a 23-year-old Cal Poly student, was driving a 1950 Ford Tudor Coupe. He turned left, crossed over the center lane. Picture a Y in the road. We know how those look. And you have to turn onto it. And this is how that's set up. So he had to pass over where James was coming from. Okay. Well, apparently James tried to avoid crashing into Donald's car by swerving. But there wasn't enough time because he was speeding. It was almost a head-on collision. And James was reported going around 85 miles an hour. But he was definitely driving fast enough that when he crashed into Donald's car, which was way heavier, like picture a 1950s black car, that was it. So way heavier than James. And he made that car slide 40 feet down the road. Jesus. And again, it was very lightweight. It was like a fucking paperclip to that like tank. Well, James's Porsche flipped in the air twice and then landed in a gully. 
Rolf was thrown from the car, but James was pinned in the wrecked Porsche. And I think they said that the steering wheel was basically in the passenger seat at that point. Jesus. And his foot was pinned in the gear shifts and stuff. Like everything was just smashed together. Rolf sustained a smashed jaw, broken leg, multiple cuts, and had like a few different head injuries. Unfortunately, we know James Dean didn't survive the wreck, and it's believed that he died on impact. He had a broken neck and then like a slew of internal injuries. James Dean was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital, and he was only 24 years old. Jesus, I knew he was young, but I didn't know he was that young. Right? That college kid, Donald, he walked away with just like very minor injuries. He had a scratch on his nose and like a couple of bruises on his face. It was determined because of how low little bastard sat to the ground and that time of the day, the color of the car, it made it basically impossible for Donald to have seen that car until it was too late. And then James was driving too fast. It was just like inevitable that they were going to crash. It was kind of like they were both at fault, but not at fault. So Donald wasn't found guilty or anything. And James Dean's death was ruled as accidental. So you know how we often say, do as we say, not as we do? Mm-hmm. Well, James Dean was the same way because he was in a road safety ad. And it was like a behind the scenes kind of like, oh, this is off the cuff. But it was all staged, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, James is on the set of, you know, filming his movie Giant, but he just stepped on over to this studio broadcast. James, what do you have to tell the children? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, at the end, he looked at the camera and this was not his line, but it was like, James, what do you want to tell the kids? And it was supposed to be like, just drive safe, you know? But he did like his little grin and said, please drive safely. The life you save could be mine. Oh, <gasps> Yeah. So where does the curse of little bastard come from? Well, James's death obviously was a catalyst. And when you add all the people who had warned him about the car and stuff, like Obi-Wan was basically right. What? Not his real name. (laughs) I think even James's girlfriend at the time had said, like, I'm not getting in that car. Like, that's going to be the death of you. You know, and just rando people that he was, like, showing it off to, Mm -hmm. you know, for the nine days that he was on a high, that he had just got this brand new car, you know, all the things. Everyone was like, no, 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 no. But can't tell that to a 24 year old or anybody for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And he had a passion for racing. And even though he did go over the speed limit on the roads and stuff, I mean, don't we all? But you can't do that in racing. You have to abide by all of those rules. He would even say, like, you can't make a mistake when you're racing because they'll disqualify you and stuff. You know, like if you. If you pass someone on the wrong thing, like you're disqualified. And so he really had that passion for it. So even though, yes, it was a fast car, he wouldn't have been a quote rebel without a cause on the speedway. Speaking about the curse, even though Rolf survived the crash, he didn't lead a great life after. He was never able to get over his survivor's guilt. And I think 
too, like, he tried to pull James from the car. And I think he thought, like, oh, shit, like, did I do something to cause, you know, extensive damage? Because, you know, you're not supposed to touch anyone in a wreck. Right. Because you might, like, hurt them, all the things. And so I think he just... Like, had a lot. Like, he survived. It was his idea for him to drive it. And, you know, all these things. It just was so much that he tried to die by suicide twice. (gasps) Oh. The second time was in 1967. And more severe because it was a murder-suicide plan. (gasps) His wife was, I believe, in the kitchen. And he attacked her. He stabbed her with a kitchen knife 14 times. And then he tried to die by suicide. Luckily, his wife survived and so did he. But Rolf was later killed in a drunk driving accident (gasps) in 1981, where I believe he ran into a building. Wait, how was he not in jail? Yeah. (laughs) I wish I could have seen her face. (laughs) Wait. That's only like 20 years. Oh, well, maybe he served his time then. What is this? Columbia? (laughs) I mean, I guess attempted murder, people get way less time. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Your face. Oh, my God. (laughs) You were like, wait. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was everything. I didn't put two and two together, but yeah. Okay, I'm going to start with the wrecked car because it was considered a total loss by the insurance department. What? The insurance agency because... um, Duh. It was. But George Barris bought it for $2,500. The curse wasted no time wreaking havoc. While they transported the car, it slipped off the trailer and broke one of his mechanic's legs. (gasps) Oh my God. Okay, in my head, I was thinking like, Broke something on, like, the tow truck. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, like, like a mechanic's, like, yeah. throttle or, you know, I'm like, okay, like, like a joystick. No, their leg. Okay. Yeah. Not what I was expecting. Then George went on to sell off some parts that were still usable. He sold the engine to Troy McHenry and the transaxle to William Eshrin. They were both racers, but like James, this was their side gig because they were both doctors. Jesus. And they were actually racing against each other in, you know, some Grand Prix thing. I don't know. When Troy lost control, spinning out, and he hit a tree and he died instantly. Oh, my God. Then William, the other guy, he was badly injured when his car locked up when it went into a turn. And both happened after they had purchased and used the parts from Little Bastard. I don't think it was, like, the race after, but it just happened that, like, both of them were in this race together, and this happened. George also sold two tires that were still, like, new to another car enthusiast. And when they were driving, both tires blew at the same time, causing another wreck. It's said that George kept the Porsche on his lot, But twice people tried to steal parts and twice they regretted it. One had his arm like sliced open when he was trying to get the steering wheel. And then another one was injured when he was moving the seat. Shouldn't be trying to steal shit. Mm Mm-hmm. George loaned the car to the California Highway Patrol 
to use it in a highway safety exhibit. Like, Mm -hmm. kids, don't drink and drive. This will happen to you. Hey, don't speed. This will happen to you, you know? Well, the garage that the car was being kept in, it caught fire. They say, like, little bastard caught fire. No other vehicle was touched. And there were some scorch marks on two tires and on the paint. Then it was at another exhibit at a local high school, but it again fell off the display and broke a student's hip. So finally, George was like, okay, this needs to just be kept under wraps. This car can't be trusted. So he loaded up the car in Florida and shipped it, I believe, via train to California. But when it arrived in California, he opened up the rail car and there was no car in it. So it was like it had vanished. It was never seen again. Like never? Never. Now, some people believe that George really got the car back, but he did keep it a secret because of all the accidents, you know, and he was just like, oh, it vanished. Other people said that maybe James's family reached out and was like, hey, can we buy it from you? Like, can you not like parade the car around that, you know, our family member was killed in? Right. But when George died, no one found the car in his possession or anything. Then in August 2005, there was an auto museum that offered a $1 million reward to anyone who would produce Little Bastard. Like, here it is. No questions asked. Here you go. But no one ever did. And like I said, that search for Little Bastard still continues to this day. However, there is a piece of James Dean's Porsche that went up for auction pretty recent and it was a transaxle. It was sold for 382 bucks. Not what I thought you were going to say. $382. Oh, sorry. I was like, I thought you were about to say 382 million. No, I suck at numbers. Okay. 382,000 bucks. Okay. That makes way more sense. Look, you know, the zero, the zero, the zero. My checking accounts never look that big. So, uh, I mean, it's got all the zeros, but like (laughs) nothing in front of it. I feel that. Usually a negative. It's in red, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's, that's the math for you. But guess who the buyer is? That guy's son. No. Zach Bagans. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) I should have guessed that shit. Yep. So that part of the curse car is in his museum in Las Vegas. I should have guessed that shit. (laughs) Womp womp. And I think they said like a Porsche now, like you can get two of those cars for what he paid for the transaxle of this car. Wow. Now, I will say that there are certain parts of that that can be confirmed. Well, we know James Dean died driving the car. We know that Dr. Troy did die in that race, but he had driven before and it was fine with that part in his car. You know, so I mean, it wasn't like it was his first time going out with that part and then he died. Right. So take that with what you will. We know that the other doctor, he did have a wreck too, but it wasn't fatal. It was used as an exhibit with the highway patrol. There was a fire, but I don't know if nothing else was touched, but we do know that like there were some marks on the car, but we don't know if that's like fabricated to be more. But a lot of people said like George kind of fabricated the other stuff to make it seem like, ooh, it's cursed, you know? So take that with what you want, because there are some other things, but like 
it was super vague. So I didn't even add that here. But it was like a truck driver was doing this and he got in a wreck and died. Like, you know what I mean? It was yeah. just like, eh, I, eh, Okay, I well, we know. can't, like, blame every single wreck on this James <laughs> Dean car. Yeah. But I had heard that his car was, like, haunted or cursed or something, but I never knew, like, really what happened. Yeah, I just knew he died young and had the car and all that. Like, I didn't even know that it was a car wreck. Yeah, well, I didn't know he raced or anything. He kind of feels like Paul Walker of their time. Paul Walker is our generation's James Dean. Yeah. Like with the cars and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that the wreck. Thing, yeah. yeah. I don't think Paul Walker was ever nominated for, you know, like an Oscar or an Academy Award, but... Really? I don't think so. I mean, there's Tokyo Drifts, though. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't know. Yeah, but James Dean was also in like three movies. Yeah, but he was nominated for awards, but it was just after he died, like because they came out after he died. He just reminds me of Paul Walker in the racing and the passing early and the car thing. Okay, yeah. To like nothing similar at all, but kind of. Yeah, no, I get that. I could be wrong, but I think Paul Walker was in a Porsche, question mark? Not a good look for Porsche. Not sure. It, it could I allegedly could have been wrong. Look, hold on, hold on. Look, Porsche could have been going to be sponsors of this podcast, and we could both <laughs> get one and sell them to Zach Bagans and pay off my student loans. <laughs> I damn sure couldn't get down in one or out of one. Okay, I know. I want a Corvette so bad. Like I just love them. And Colby was like, "We can't ride in a Corvette together." No. You like sports cars and stuff. I like luxury. I want you to drive yourself. Like, I don't have to touch the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. Like, that's my goal. Like, to have cooling seats. Yes. That is my all-the-time car. Uh, Yeah. See, you have way bigger dreams than me because I only have one. Now, if I'm going to have two cars, one's going to be an old Bronco. That's the same thing as me wanting... Your old Bronco probably costs... I'm going to say does cost more than old Corvette that I want. Yes, but see, a Bronco I could get into. You cannot. You'd have to get a run start. Uh, I'm just telling you, you legit would need a step because I have I have a friend that has one. I'm just saying. I would have running boards unlike some friend who never got them for her car and it's hard as hell to get into. First of all, you don't ride in my car anymore because you're allergic to dog care. Second of all, do you know how expensive those things are? I had a patient that was a tow truck driver and he was like, what kind you need? What you got? Like, what year is it? All the things. And he was like asking every time he went to one to be like, hey, you got any running boards that'll fit this car for me? Nada. Damn. Ain't nobody got them. Those things are expensive. Um, 25 years later, I did look it up and Paul Walker was a passenger in a red Porsche Carrera GT? Mm. Question mark, question mark on the Carrera. Look, I am not fancy. We know. I don't even like the fancy napkins they give you at restaurants. I say, can I, we have the paper napkins, please? What that one restaurant, they do stink. Look, I am messy. Doesn't wipe all my stuff off. Like, it's just like, it just sits there. It's like those towels that sometimes are like super soft and you're like, oh my yes. God. But like, I'm still wet. Yes. It's nice and luxurious, but I need something like rough that's just going to take all the... Hot off? Yeah. God, shit we talk about. <laughs> well, I'm definitely glad you went second. Yes. Because even though I'm sad because someone died, well, multiple people died, it's not as sad as yours. Yours was, who heart-wrenching. 
And more than anything, made me very angry. Yeah. So many people are advocating for him to be in jail for so much longer. I highly doubt he's going to get paroled next year. But it's just the fact that he killed upwards of 200 people, 200 kids, 6 to 13-year-olds. Kids. Yes, like you said, so horribly. And they've proven it. And the fact that he's even eligible for parole, period, is just absurd. Yeah. Well, thank y'all so much for all of your recommendations. Don't forget to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to spread the word for our podcast. I'll say podcast less next time, I swear. But really and truly, it helps us. Don't forget to join Patreon for extra bonus content every single week. There's so much happening on there. There's such a backlog. If you are caught up with this podcast and you're like, fuck, what am I going to do? I'm caught up. A Patreon. Because there is a literal fuck ton yeah and the bloopers we had just from this episode alone oh my god so stick around thank y'all so much for supporting us and remember creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared